0: Joseph Walker is about to have an historic flight, but he does not know of it yet. He smiles at his chase pilot showing the OK sign and closes the cockpit of his steel friend, the newest unpowered rocket plane, X-15. It's placed under the wing of a B-52 bomber. They take off and go up to 45,000 feet. Joseph is calm and full of joy because he has been getting ready for this moment his whole life. He trusts his steel-winged friend like no other. The bomber drops the X-15. The rockets fire up, and with a fantastic thrust, Joe flies steeply toward the edge of space. He knows his dream of making the first-ever suborbital plane flight will soon come true. Joe adjusts the controls to intensify the rocket energy. In contrast to the usual blue sky plane view, The beautiful curved planet Earth view and a black horizon is a visual privilege only a few people can have. Joseph Walker's reaction shows he is experiencing zero gravity. Welcome to space, the pilot says quietly. We did it, guys! The Walker surname has always automatically propelled him to action. He just had to go forward, strive for higher results, and not stop. As a teenager, he loved to run, arms outstretched at the sides. He imagined that his legs lifted off the ground suddenly, and he felt himself flying, soaring up both as a man and an airplane. When he worked as a test pilot, he used to fly over city lights at dusk. They assembled themselves into gigantic mosaics below and reminded him of faraway stars he wanted to reach. His dream of becoming an astronaut and getting the astronaut wings, which he considered a great honor, was born at that time. On his way to his dream, Joe studied a lot and got a bachelor's degree in physics. He also had extensive test experience in the early X-Series aircraft and 27 flights in rocket aircraft after joining the NACA, which stands for the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, in Dryden in 1951. He combined the experience with sound engineering judgment. What drives a test pilot to risk his life every day? Courage? Duty? Devotion? Passion? All of it. Joe was a talented test pilot and would not have traded jobs with anyone. But he had always aimed higher. So he became the right person for the X-15 spaceflight program when he was invited to be its chief pilot. The whole team, including the engineers and all the 12 test pilots, had to prove that they could design an airplane that would fly and survive at hypersonic speeds. Before, there was only a theory about hypersonic flight and subscale wind tunnel testing. That's why there were many questions, like, will they be able to prove it? Will they manage to design an airplane that will be stable and controllable at hypersonic speeds? Could they possibly create a structure that would survive the high heating rates associated with hypersonic speeds? And, more importantly, could a pilot survive and function adequately in this high-energy environment? When the X-15 launches from the bomber's wing, it first goes into a freefall for several seconds. And only after that, the rockets can be ignited. So there was a considerable risk of a rocket failure, too. The team also had to design an airplane that would be controllable outside the atmosphere and could successfully re-enter it at high speed and steep entry angles. If the X-15 took the wrong angle, the plane would be destroyed. So could they prove all of this? To regularly tempt fate is a real job of any test pilot. Joseph knew the anatomy of his winged friend as much as his own, because his life depended on it. The X-15 looked like a big propellant tank with a cockpit. It was 50 feet long, 20 feet wide, and 13 feet high. But the propellant tanks took up approximately 25 of those 50 feet. The X-15 weighed 15,000 pounds without propellants, and 33,000 pounds loaded with them. The propellants consisted of liquid oxygen and anhydrous ammonia, To fly at the hypersound speed of Mach 6, or 4,000 miles per hour, one must have an airplane that will survive temperatures as high as 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit. That's why the X-15 was built of steel Iconel X, a tough, high-strength nickel-steel alloy. Only three aircraft were built. The X-15 was by far the fastest plane existing at that time it could fly at a speed of up to seven times the speed of sound, which is 4,520 miles per hour. Joseph Walker could fly to the edge of space and land again within 12 minutes. The plane was powered by a liquid rocket engine, Reaction Motors XLR-99, which delivered a powerful thrust of 57,000 pounds. During Walker's first X-15 flight, He was unaware of how much power the rocket motors had, and he was slammed into the pilot seat yelling, oh wow! The enormous ejection seat weighed 270 pounds. It had two large stabilizing fins deployed after ejection and two large telescopic booms that extended for seat stabilization. The aircraft had a conventional wing, although small, with only a 22-foot span and roughly 200 square feet of area. The aircraft's tail was unusual, with two candid horizontal and two vertical surfaces. These tail surfaces resembled the feathers on an arrow. They served the same purpose, keeping the aircraft stable and pointed in the right direction. The upper and lower vertical tail surfaces were pretty large and thick compared to conventional airplanes. They were wedge-shaped in cross-section with a sharp edge in front and a broad and a broad base at the rear. This provided additional stability and prevented the aircraft from swapping ends at extremely high speeds. The airflow sensor on the airplane's nose determined the airflow direction and impact pressure. This sensor was referred to as the ball nose. It was servo-driven to align with the airflow affecting the aircraft's nose. From this, the engineers obtained the angle of attack, the side-slip inclination, and the impact pressure of the air flowing over the aircraft. The ball nose was cooled with liquid nitrogen, prevent it from melting during high-speed flight. Walker sometimes liked to playfully bet with his fellow test pilots who would be the first to lift the rocket plane above the Kármán line, the internationally accepted boundary of 62 miles. On August 22, 1963, during Flight 91, Joseph Walker sets a world record of the highest altitude of 67.08 miles reached by an unpowered plane X-15. The X-15 is hoisted up to the pylon on the B-52 wing. The hoists are located in the x 15 servicing, fueling, and mating areas. All pre-flight checks are completed. Take off. The X-15 is the first aircraft to utilize an inertial platform and a computer. Standard barometric instruments are almost useless in the X-15. Joseph has them on the instrument panel, but he only uses them during landing, because they don't work at high altitudes or outside the atmosphere. For a sizable portion of the flight, he uses inertial data for control and guidance. Launch. The X-15 drops away from the bomber and gets into a freefall for several seconds. Then the rockets start by burning within 85 seconds, producing extreme power. Joseph pulls the plane up at a steep climb-out angle to start forming a long parabola and comes out of the atmosphere. The pilot has good visibility, since the windows are next to his head. One very unusual thing about the visibility out of the X-15's windows is that the pilot cannot see any part of the airplane. He cannot see the nose. He cannot see the wings. Nothing. Typically, pilots use the nose and the wings in an aircraft for attitude reference. In the X-15, all Joseph has for a reference is the window frame, which is very disorienting on the one hand. But on the bright side, such a panoramic view is just right to enjoy the splendid horizon, a boundary between Earth and space. Joseph thinks how quiet it is here, like nowhere else. Mission completed. Joseph completes a perfect parabola and re-enters the atmosphere successfully. The X-15 is like a tough old bird that pops and bangs as it accelerates above extreme speed. But it all hangs together and gets Joseph Walker back home he is ready to start a glide, landing from space. The X-15 has some outstanding features that significantly enhance the safety of landing. It has highly effective speed brakes, which are essential in an unpowered aircraft to adjust energy and ensure a pilot gets back to the ground safely. The more effective they are, the more precise the control of the power and the more accurate the landing. It's hard to imagine but the pilot lands the X-15 only about 11 minutes and 8 seconds after its launch, having gone through the distance of 337 miles. Joseph Walker makes history as the first civilian test pilot flying to space by a rocket plane twice. Despite all the risks of the X-15 program, the courageous test pilots pushed the very limits of their piloting skills and physical health to master groundbreaking experimental technology. The program's overall success helped develop the Space Shuttle program and paved the way for NASA to continue to the moon decades later. Joseph Walker got a lot of awards and the cherished astronaut wings, but only many years later. The Lunar Landing Research Vehicle, used to develop piloting and operational techniques for lunar landings, was trusted to be piloted by Joseph. And the famous moon creator Walker was named in his honor. December 4th,
1: 1970. Pilot Bruce Gernand had two passengers on board his Beechcraft Bonanza single-engine aircraft, his father and business partner. They took off from Andros Island in the Bahamas and headed northwest for the Florida coast. Sure, they were in the infamous Bermuda Triangles airspace, but this was a typical flight Bruce had made dozens of times before. The trip usually took about an hour and a half with no hiccups whatsoever. Bruce took off and started gaining altitude. Strange things started happening right from the get-go. At first, he noticed a small cloud up ahead, but it kept growing. Not from the plane getting closer. This thing was actually getting bigger in size. Bruce had to fly through it, and he came out the other end just fine. He gained altitude, and yet another mysterious cloud appeared. This one was massive, and Bruce had no other choice but to fly through it, too. At that moment, it got dark as night all around the aircraft. But this wasn't a storm cloud, and it wasn't raining. Bruce was starting to get worried, and then... BAM! He saw flashes of white light! Bruce kept flying for another 30 minutes, when he realized this was the same cloud he had gone through earlier when he started to climb. But now the cloud was cylindrical, and the plane was flying through its center. It was wide and seemed endless. Bruce thought he could never get out of that trap. But a minute later, he saw light at the end of the tunnel. But all of a sudden, the walls of the cloud tunnel began to narrow. They were closing in on the plane. The navigational instruments started wigging out. The compass was spinning by itself, counterclockwise. The walls kept narrowing, smaller and smaller, wrapping like a vortex. The electrical instruments still going haywire. Bruce was running out of time. He had to get out of this place fast. A grueling 20 seconds later, he burst out of this foggy trap. As Bruce described later, he felt weightless for five seconds as his plane left the tunnel. The clouds dispersed, and now the aircraft was in a grayish haze. The men let out a big sigh of relief. He immediately grabbed the radio and contacted ground control to determine his location. But when the dispatcher looked at the green screen, his face became contorted with confusion. Bruce's plane wasn't on the radar. It was as if the thing was invisible. But then the dispatcher said the aircraft was already in Miami airspace. Bruce was utterly shocked. It just couldn't be true. Remember, the whole trip usually took around 90 minutes, but this time, it took just 47 minutes to get to the destination. His plane didn't magically gain some supersonic speed beyond the model's limited max cruising speed. This was physically impossible. The dispatcher must have made a mistake. But when the clouds parted, Bruce saw that he really was over Miami. The plane landed safely, and it was time to try and solve this mystery. Bruce checked the remaining fuel and his watch. After a short calculation, he was only more confused. The plane hadn't gone through the amount of fuel it should have. Archive records show that 84 sunspots were recorded that day, as well as a huge solar wind. This would cause disturbances in the Earth's magnetosphere that could throw off the plane's instruments and radars. But so far, no one has been able to explain how the plane got to Miami so fast. Maybe in the future, the truth will be revealed. In the meantime, it remains another mysterious riddle of the Bermuda Triangle. More than 50 ships and 20 planes have disappeared here since the middle of the 19th century. You won't find this place using an ordinary paper map, since it's not an official region of the Atlantic Ocean. It's just a small area of water in the shape of a triangle located not far from the southeastern coast of the US. In the 20th century, this place became a legend. Some believe it's home to a secret base. Others are positive it's a time portal. Ships get caught in a strong storm and move to the past or the future. There's also a theory that the city of Atlantis is located right under the Bermuda Triangle. Its technologies create bursts of energy and destroy ships. Even airplanes have a chance to disappear in this area. All this has gone so far that if something strange happens in the ocean, everyone thinks it's somehow connected with the Bermuda Triangle. The fear of the Triangle has been made popular through books and movies. Directors, writers, and journalists like to use this theme. But in their works, you only see a few correct answers. You can find the truth about this place yourself if you look closely. But first, let's refute the weakest theories. Space objects, Atlantis, time travel. All these myths appeared in the middle of the 20th century. There weren't any records about mysterious phenomena before this time. People just noted that a lot of ships were sinking here. But then, one author wrote a book about Atlantis lying in the waters of the Triangle. The author didn't provide any evidence. But he described this hypothesis very convincingly. People read it and liked it. The human psyche likes to read something secret. When you learn something that no one knows about, it makes you feel special. And of course, you begin to believe in this secret. So this was one reason why the Bermuda Triangle book has become so popular. It brought the author a lot of money. And other people also wanted to enrich themselves the same way some other fantastic theories about time travel and secret bases have appeared since then after that people started making documentaries all those works devoted to the mystical nature of the triangle were based not on real facts but on theories from other books it's impossible to find the truth in this chaos some people like to learn secrets even if they're fake but you can always find the truth if you really want just take any myth and try to find sources proving its reality Most likely, you'll find nothing but non-scientific books and movies. There are also more realistic things about the triangle, but they are no less interesting. One hypothesis says that ships disappear there because of methane. Deposits of this gas are under the seabed of this region. Sometimes it releases from there and rises to the surface. As soon as methane comes into contact with water, it takes the form of giant bubbles. Then these bubbles foam the water and create large waves that flip the ships. This theory is quite real, and such a natural phenomenon exists, but not in the Bermuda Triangle. None of the numerous studies have confirmed the presence of an increased concentration of this gas here. The last methane eruption occurred here about 15,000 years ago. Another realistic theory is rogue waves. They form without storms and winds. The calm water surface can transform into a big wave, the height of a five-story building, in three seconds. It sinks a ship and then quickly disappears. The sea is calm again, as if there were no waves at all. Some scientists believe a surface sea current colliding with a strong headwind creates this phenomenon. But some recorded cases involved no wind. Another version says the wave is born thanks to the collision of warm and cold currents, But the most exciting theory talks about kinetic vampirism that forms the waves. Under certain natural conditions, waves get the ability to exchange kinetic energy. And among all the waves, there will be the biggest, the vampire one. It absorbs the energy from all the others. When the power is accumulated, the vampire wave splashes it out. This explains the force of the impact and its sudden disappearance. All theories seem logical but scientists still can't figure out the nature of this phenomenon. Yes, rogue waves can carry ships underwater, but not only in the Bermuda Triangle. They rarely appear in all the waters of the world's oceans. So let's move on to the next theory. Some of those who sailed through this place reported their navigation devices had become unstable. The compass and electronics broke down. The signal and radio communications were lost. We need to look at the triangle from space to find out the reason. If you use special sensors and devices, you'll see that the Earth's magnetic field is weakened above the Bermuda Triangle. This field is a shield that protects us from solar radiation. The ISS astronauts said that the triangle gets more of the sun's particles than any other part of the planet. Therefore, electronics are unstable in this area. But such failures don't occur with satellites and other space objects flying within our planet's atmosphere. Areas with a weakened magnetic field appear all over the world, and they hardly ever disrupt navigation. This means that ships and planes work stably in such conditions. But all the same, a compass doesn't work correctly in the triangle area. Could it be that some magnetic anomaly affects the navigation systems? This theory was quickly refuted. Scientists regularly check the magnetic map of this region and don't find any deviations from the norm. The reason for the unstable functioning of a compass is not an anomaly. The Bermuda Triangle is one of the few places on the planet where the true north and magnetic poles coincide. True north is the geographical north pole. The magnetic pole is constantly moving around the globe directly to the north. Sometimes these poles collide and cause such a phenomenon as agonic lines. If you fall under this line, your compass will behave strangely and won't point you to the true north. That's why so many ships disappeared in this place at the beginning of the 20th century. People used an ordinary compass. They didn't have modern navigation technologies and the misfunctioning of the compass could have led to disastrous consequences. Imagine that you're a ship's captain in, let's say, 1901. Your compass is guiding your way. You know you always need to sail north to get to land. Then you get into the Bermuda Triangle. You look at the compass and notice the arrow position has slightly changed. Now you need to move in another direction. This direction is the wrong one, but you don't know about it yet. You take the wrong path and end up in the Caribbean region. This area is full of tiny islands, and the seabed is not deep here. Your ship gets on a shoal you're stuck and have no idea where you are. That's how some ships disappeared in this region. But if you had GPS, you wouldn't have lost your route and would have sailed safely to land. By the way, now in the 21st century, you can use a compass here without problems, since the magnetic north pole doesn't meet the true one on the territory of the Bermuda Triangle anymore. The agonic lines are somewhere else right now. But still, for some reason, Ships get lost here. And now we come to the most unexpected solution to the Bermuda Triangle problem. Yes, boats sometimes disappear in this region. And the reason for this is... Water. Ocean. Nature. Call it whatever you want. Unfortunately, ships sink all over the world. Don't be afraid of just one triangle. There are places in the Atlantic Ocean territory where more boats disappear. And the Bermuda Triangle is not even in the top 10 of them. But why does no one know about them? Well, it's because people wrote fairy tales about one particular place. One of the most popular ship routes of the Atlantic passes through the Bermuda Triangle. Can you guess where most shipwrecks occur statistically? In a place with many sailing ships. That is, in this region. The only true statement about the Bermuda Triangle is frequent storms. But even bad weather and a raging sea doesn't always sink ships. Also, Hurricanes often form in the Triangle territory. The Bermuda region has high atmospheric pressure. This pressure diverts storm clouds away towards the Triangle. Strong winds and large waves can sink ships, and lightning flashes can damage planes, but this is not unique. So don't blame the Triangle for all the problems. It's a beautiful and picturesque place that attracts many tourists.